Buongiorno. Welcome to my podcast. This is Claire coming to you again from my home in lovely Florence, Italy. Someday I hope to bring you a podcast from somewhere else, but uh, unfortunately all of Tuscany has just entered the dreaded COVID red zone again. We're going to stay red all the way through the Easter weekend to try to get our numbers down. The mood here is uh, frustrated but compliant. It's springtime and uh, it's gorgeous weather outside and we're still allowed to go outside for exercise. So I think everybody is just trying to stay positive and just trying to get through this as best we can. Yesterday was uh, Palm Sunday and I went out for a walk in the hills above my house and I swear I have never seen so many people out walking. It really is amazing. Normally on a spring Sunday, people would be driving into the countryside, maybe driving to the beach. They'd be going around to visit friends and family. And since we're not allowed to leave the city limits and a lot of the stores are closed and we're not supposed to get together with lots of people inside, everybody was outside taking a walk. Um, most people masked and distanced, but still the mood seemed generally to be positive and everybody was just happy to be outside now that winter is over. So even though this pandemic drags on, um, I don't know, me personally, I feel like uh, there is a light at the end of the tunnel somewhere. Summer is coming. Uh, we've got temperatures here in the 20s centigrade this week. That's in the 70s Fahrenheit. So basically that means walks and bike rides every afternoon. So uh, speaking of walks in the hills, I thought I would bring you uh, an episode today, um, an extraordinary moment of history that I found out took place right in the hills where I walk. Um, something I never would have expected, and it actually uh, dovetails with one of my favorite works of art ever. So today I'm going to bring you a podcast about the dying gull. Let's begin many years ago. When I was in Rome, I decided to pop into the Capitoline Museum. And this was in the days before uh, smartphones. And um, back in the day, I would just uh, wander in unprepared and have a look at museums and then wander out again. Most times in doing so, missing out on what was so special about what I was looking at. So in this particular case, I was looking at the statuary, the marble statuary in this uh, famous museum in Rome. And I saw one piece that absolutely stopped me in my tracks. It portrayed a naked man slumped on the ground. He's leaning on one arm. His head is hanging down in defeat. If you look closer, you can just see there's a tiny wound in his side and it's bleeding. You can tell that the man is dying before your eyes. It's a powerful, powerful image. And I looked down to see the title and it was called The Dying Gaul. All I knew about the Gauls at the time was that that was what they called the people who lived in France before Julius Caesar defeated them in 52 BC and that most of them were killed or wiped out or driven north. So um, because I have French ancestry, my grandfather was born in France, I saw The Dying Gaul and took it personally and I was saddened and, and felt a deep connection with my own ancestry. And I felt angry at, at Rome and at imperial powers. And I was so moved that, uh, that I had tears in my eyes. Now, I knew almost nothing about ancient Gaul as a civilization. 
So I stood there for a while in awe of this amazing piece of art and then uh, eventually moved off and uh, left the museum and forgot about it. So now let's flash forward to just a few years ago. I was at home in, uh, in Florence and uh, I decided to pick up a book that I had bought on a whim years ago at a secondhand bookstore in rural Oregon. It's called The Celts, The People Who Came Out of the Darkness by Gerhard Herm. It was originally written in German in 1975 and translated into English a year later. About 20 pages in, he writes about a bloody battle that took place between Florence and Fiesole. Fiesole is the village that's up on a hill above where I live. So this is exactly the hills where I go hiking. He describes the Romans marching north with 15,000 troops while the Celtic warriors waited in the woods before charging out to ambush them. Mayhem ensued and 6,000 Roman lives were lost. I couldn't believe that this had all taken place in, in the peaceful woods where I go to take walks every day. By this time I had home Wi-Fi, so I immediately ran to my computer to start doing research. Who were the Celts? And then who were the Gauls? And what were they doing in the hills above my house? Normally when I think about the Celts, I think about the, the Irish, the Scots, the Welsh, even maybe the Bretons who live in Northwestern France. But as I did my research, I found out that that's not where they're from, that's where they ended up. They're most likely from the steppe of Central Europe, mainly the area around the Volga River of Russia. Originally, they were nomadic tribes who roamed the plains on horseback. They were known for being exceptional riders. Sometime around 1000 BC, there was a gradual but sustained migration of people from east to west across Europe and the Middle East, possibly as a result of climate disasters. The massive volcanic eruption on the island of Santorini in Greece around 1600 BC was one of the largest in human history and is thought to have caused radical change throughout the Mediterranean. The term Celt comes from the Greek word Keltoi, first mentioned by Greek historians in the 6th century BC. The Greeks would have encountered these tribes in the south of France when they founded the city of Marseille. Gaul, on the other hand, comes from the Greek Galatai and referred to the Celtic tribes who invaded Thrace, which is now around the area of the Balkans, in 280 BC. The Romans took this term and referred to them as Galli. So I guess the Celts are the ethnic tribal group, while the Gauls became the name of the specific tribes who lived in the area around France and Belgium. In fact, France is still called Gallia in Greek. From around 800 BC, we see Celtic tribes set up permanent settlements in areas around Austria, Germany, and France. Now we're in the transitional period between the Bronze Age and the Iron Age in Central Europe, and they became masters of metalworking. In a vast salt mine in Hallstatt, Austria, for example, archaeologists have found the remains of over a thousand burial sites overflowing with amazing artifacts, including chariots, swords, and jewelry. Their signature piece was called the torque, a thick gold or silver choker that they wore around their necks or wrists. This was the perfect way for a nomadic society to carry their valuables literally on their person. By the 5th century BC, the Celts had expanded even farther and have become quite wealthy. Eventually, some tribes crossed the Alps and occupied parts of northern Italy, which was then called Gallia Cisalpina, or Cisalpine Gaul. Cis being Latin for on this side of, as opposed to trans, which is on the other side of.
Side note, this explains the term that we hear about a lot these days, cisgender, meaning that your gender identity ma matches the sex you were assigned at birth. Anyway, by the fourth century BC, Celtic tribes occupied the entire area of Northern Italy and expanded across the flat plains around Milan. They even got as far south as Bologna, where eventually they were halted by the rising mountains of the Apennines. South of the Apennines, you had the Etruscans, who had their own flourishing society. The Celts also headed west and made their way into Spain. There's an area in Western Spain that even today is called Galicia, and they're still proud of their Celtic heritage. I visited a few years ago and saw lots of flags and designs with the three-legged Triskelion on it, just like you see in the British Isles. Around the third century BC, they moved south into Anatolia, into what is now Turkey, sacking the ancient site of Delphi as they went. They sold their services as mercenaries and eventually settled in an area that became known as Galatia. Those of you familiar with the Bible will recognize Paul's letter to the Galatians is the ninth book of the New Testament. So the Celts are even in the Bible. But they weren't exactly welcome in the civilized world of ancient Greece as they were violent and unruly. They kept plundering nearby villages. For them, war was a means to acquire wealth, prestige, power, and land. They'd head out on raids and capture cattle and slaves, which they would trade for luxury goods and wine. Apparently, they loved to drink. And in war, they were fearless, partly because bravery was highly prized, but also because they believed in life after death, so they had nothing to fear. They terrorized everyone they came into contact with and quickly earned a reputation for being fierce and unforgiving warriors. Their tactics were wild and unhinged, and many of the men fought naked. Here's a quote from the Sicilian historian Diodorus. Their aspect is terrifying. They are very tall in stature with rippling muscles under clear white skin. Their hair is blonde, but not naturally so. They bleach it artificially, washing it in lime and combing it back from their foreheads. They look like wood demons, their hair thick and shaggy like a horse's mane. Some wore bronze helmets with figures on them, even horns, which made them look even taller than they already are, while others covered themselves with breast armor made of chains. But most content themselves with the weapons nature gave them. They go naked into battle, unquote. He says their lance blades could be up to 18 inches long and six inches across. The elite warriors wore nothing but their gleaming metal torques around their necks and wrists as a way to show their status. Since they were expert horsemen, they could attack on horseback or else on chariots, with one man driving and the other hurling javelins before jumping off and chasing after his victims. Before going into battle, they would sing, beat their chests, taunt their enemies, and blow on a long war horn known as a carnix. Listen to this. pretty scary. <laughs> the final horrifying detail was that the Celts would cut off the heads of their victims after they killed them and tie them around their horses' heads as they rode into battle. 
So they inspired fear everywhere they went. They finally met their first big defeat at the hands of Attalus I, king of the powerful Greek city of Pergamon, in a series of battles around 240 BC. This brings me back to the sculpture of the dying Gaul. It's actually not a Roman original, but a Roman marble copy of a Greek bronze that was commissioned by King Attalus for a monument to celebrate his victory. There would have been a whole series of works of which only two survive. There's this dying Gaul and another marble copy that's even more disturbing called the Ludovici Gaul or the Galatian suicide as it shows a naked warrior about to impale himself on his own sword after apparently killing his wife most likely in reaction to losing a battle. There are many stories of Celtic warriors committing suicide rather than be taken prisoner. That last sculpture was found on the grounds of the Ludovici Villa in Rome around 1623, a villa which was built over a vast pleasure garden in the era of Julius Caesar, who famously defeated the Gauls in Southern France in 52 BC. So it would make perfect sense that these two dying Gauls would have captured the imagination of the Romans and would have inspired marble copies. Now, what did the Gauls ever do to Rome, you may wonder? Well, way back in 390 BC, when Rome was just a city among others, struggling to get a foothold over its neighbors, the Gauls managed to cross the Apennine Mountains and began attacking Etruscan cities in Tuscany and beyond. Some of the hilltop towns sent urgent messages to Rome asking for help in repelling the foreign barbarians. The Romans agreed and sent 15,000 troops, but they were soundly defeated at the Battle of the Alia River, some 11 kilometers or seven miles north of Rome. The Romans retreated, the Gauls followed, entered the city and sacked it. This incident colored Roman memory for centuries and helped shape the strategy and discipline of the Roman legion as we know it. They never forgot how frightening it was to face these great naked warriors in battle. All right, so let's get back to the Tuscan Hills. On page 22 of my book, I read about a confrontation between Celtic tribes near Florence and the advancing Roman troops. They had reached a standoff just south of Florence and put up their tents for the night. Quote, while the sentries in the Roman bivouacs merely kept in sight the Celts' campfires and listened to the savage singing that floated over, the Celtic army stole off soundlessly toward Fiesole. The noises heard by the Roman sentries came from only a few cavalry groups left behind, so they naturally believed the Celts were trying to retreat. They set off hastily in pursuit without first doing what any semi-competent subaltern would have done in such circumstances, send out spies. If they had done this, the lives of 6,000 of their men would have been spared. The Celts' only aim was to have the Romans in that formation in which an army is at its most vulnerable, on the march. They attacked down the slopes without warning, ripped apart the Roman column as it marched unheedingly forward and engaged in thousands of hand-to-hand -hand combats. Those Romans who could not flee were killed." Unquote. I think about this often as I take my almost daily walks in the wooded hills above my house. Where I find peace and solace and birds chirping and a babbling brook, somewhere deep underground might be the skeletal remains of this bloody battle. I try and I try to open up myself to historical psychic vibrations, but I never feel a thing. The past is past. Now, small parentheses, some historians have said that it couldn't have taken place here in the hills near Fiesole, as historical records show it would have been closer to Rome, but frankly, I don't care. If it was in this battle, it was some other battle. 
obviously the Celts came through Tuscany and there would have been some battle. So I stick to my story. So this marked the end of Cisalpine Gaul and it pushed the remaining Celts up into France where they established a flourishing community of tribes who farmed and traded with peoples from Iberia to the Danube. They'd come a long way from their nomadic life on the Russian steppe and had organized cities with sophisticated workshops, producing intricate pieces of metalwork and a host of weapons. Social distinctions became increasingly more important with emerging elite classes of chieftains and warriors and slaves. One element of their formerly barbaric nature they decided to keep, however, they built niches above the entrance doors to their homes where they would display the severed head of their latest enemy, which they had carefully preserved in cedar oil. <laughs> How's that for a welcome mat? So because of their tribal nature, the Celts never organized into a unified empire, which ultimately led to their fall at the hands of Julius Caesar. By the time he set his sights on Gaul, it was too late. Over the course of about 10 years, Caesar, who was a general at the time, began military campaigns against various Celtic tribes, mostly on trumped up charges that he invent invented in order to enrich his own reputation. The last historic resistance was led by the Gallic chief Vercingetorix, who was ultimately defeated in 52 BC, and that's all she wrote. Caesar returned to Rome, a conquering hero. Rome then took over Gaul, and eventually the Gallic tribes were Romanized. For me, knowing the full history sheds so much light on the powerful emotions evoked by the marble statue, the dying Gaul. He's not portrayed as an enemy so much as a worthy opponent. He's not disparaged as weak, but respected. The stark beauty of his body and the pose give him honor and pay respects to the proud fighting force of this ancient tribe. Historians generally agree that the Celts didn't lose to the Romans because they couldn't fight, but because they weren't united. So the man dying in front of our eyes is portrayed as a valiant warrior, but a conquered one. The message clearly is, we won and don't you forget it. The statue eventually inspired generations of visitors to Rome, starting with the 17th and 18th century travelers on the grand tour of Europe that was required for anyone of good standing. Lord Byron was one of those and mentions the statue as a gladiator before it was identified as a Gallic warrior in his poem, Child Harold's Pilgrimage. Quote, I see before me the gladiator lie. He leans upon his hand. His manly brow consents to death, but conquers agony and his drooped head sinks gradually low. And through his side, the last drops ebbing slow from the red gash fall heavy one by one, unquote. I'm still touched by this statue every time I see it. The slumped body, the face that expresses so much sadness, so much loss, the gash in his side, his sword and war trumpet on the ground beside him. A proud warrior facing death. And in the end, I do feel sorry for him. Even if he was violent and cruel, I'd feel sorry for anyone dying alone on a battlefield. Aside from its potent message of the horrors of war, the statue raises the question of identity. Here we have a Roman copy of a Greek statue of a Gaul who's not French, but Russian that was placed originally in Turkey. How can we separate out all of the strands that bind us? What does it mean to be French or Italian or Greek if our history is one of continuous movement, of mixing and blending our cultures until we're so intertwined, I can't tell where I end and you begin. This is what great art does. It lifts you above your individual experience 
and puts you in touch with the universal. In the end, I'm not crying for the dying gall. I'm crying because I am the dying gall. We all are. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this little slice of history. I realize it, it's yet again sort of a glum topic, but, uh, you know, this just didn't seem to be the right moment to talk about uh, going out into the city center and having an apero spritz with my friends. Um, we're still living through a glum moment, and uh, which is okay. Why not? It's a pandemic. Hopefully when the restrictions are lifted, I will be coming to you from a crowded square with a clink of ice cubes in my glass and I'll take you on a journey somewhere. But for the moment, uh, for the moment, I'm reading about history and just thankful that I'm allowed to go out and take walks. So thanks again for coming along and I will see you again in a few weeks. Ciao, ciao. A presto.